Hello, this is the Webertarian Podcast, and today I wanted to talk about, um, I've been watching some, um, some debate videos regarding capitalism and socialism, uh, lately. Um, specifically, um, a decent amount of Vosh ones, not, not necessarily his videos, like, as far as, uh, or not even necessarily the debate videos themselves. As far as, like, Vosh debates I've watched, I've watched his debate with Stefan Molyneux, um, his debate with uh, Actual Justice Warrior, and his debate with Sargon of Akkad. Um, it's been a really long time since I've watched those. But um, when I watched them... To be honest, I was kind of surprised at how many points I actually agreed with Vosh on. Um, but I overall don't agree with him. So, but I mean, like there were points where I was like, "That's that's a good point," and I agree with that. But yeah, um, there were other times where I was like, "Huh?" Like, um, but the 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 main thing I wanted to talk about in regards to these debates is. Um, Oh wait, it wasn't even actually a Vosh debate. Although I think I'll get to something that was said about a Vosh debate at some point. But I, I think this... It was... Uh, I think the YouTuber's name is Stephen Michael Davis or something like that. Scuba Steve. Um, but he... I can't remember exactly what he said. But... um. It was him commenting on a debate between Richard Wolff, who is a communist economist. And if you've ever watched his debates, they're just they're just terrible. Like <laughs> when he was uh, he was debating Gene Epstein one time, and Richard Wolff's side of the debate it lacked any reason or logic. And it just sounded like it was like the the it sounded like the negative of and by negative I mean like not not like you know in um, in photography like the reverse color of um, of a preach or a preacher because um, it was so weird like he'd talk in like these tones that were like long and drawn out and like, uh, you know, he'd, he'd like drag out his words and make it sound like, Ooh, the evil capitalists. And they, they don't want you to learn about communism because they just want you to know that it's evil and they want to control you. And he, like, talks like that, and it's like, what? You are a fucking weirdo, and that's not even a good argument. Like, his that was legitimately one of his arguments when debating uh, Gene Epstein. He was like, the reason why we should try communism is because all the capitalist economists keep telling you that it's evil. And therefore, if they say it's evil, then it must be good. So let's try it. It was like, what? What are you smoking, dude? But, <laughs> so, this, uh, 
and I, I, I didn't listen to the debate, but allegedly he debated like the Reason podcast people, like um Catherine Megan Ward, and uh, I don't, I know it was her. I don't know whether um Nick Gillespie was in on the debate, but you know both her and Nick Gillespie are pretty frequent representatives of like capitalism and libertarianism on the intelligence squared debates. Um, which I, I don't, I mean, like I like reason, but like, I don't fully agree with a lot of them. Like I'm more the Mises, uh, Rothbardian strain of libertarianism, but, uh, allegedly Richard Wolf won his debate on socialism versus capitalism when debating those two, which I find very difficult to believe. Like, I don't agree with those two a lot, but they, they, I feel like they often do a very good job of defending capitalism. Um, but, uh, got way off a of track there. Um, the thing I wanted to talk about was, again, uh, it was like in a Stephen Michael da- Davis, or I think that's the dude's name. Uh, like, uh, commentary on the debate between Richard Wolf and destiny. And he had commented that one of the, uh, one of the difficulties in debating capitalism versus socialism frequently is like, I I'm paraphrasing here. I, in, I, I didn't watch it recently, but, um, I think he said it was like something like the difficulty of defining capitalism and the major point of contention in that debate was that neither of them seems to be able, well, I don't think it was that destiny seemed to be incapable of defining capitalism. It was that Richard Wolf seemed incapable of defining capitalism. But even if that's the case, like I, I believe Stephen Michael Davis, like his, his commentary was basically like, that if people can't even de- agree on the definitions of the terms of the debate, debate, then there's nowhere for the debate to go. It's just people arguing semantics the entire time, which is a good point. <clears throat> um, uh, there was there was something I wanted to say regarding arguing semantics. I can't remember what it was. I, I might think of it once I get into what I was going to say, the the other thing I was going to say. Um, but so this is, this is a problem that I personally have encountered when debating capitalism. And I've seen virtually everybody that is pro capitalism encounter this problem when debating capitalism. And that's, uh, <clears throat> that, people who are in favor of capitalism tend to have a different definition of capitalism from people who are opposed to it. And because they can't agree on the terms of the debate, they, they just end up arguing semantics the whole time where, you know, the people that have one definition of capitalism keep on saying, oh, these are examples of capitalism gone wrong, and then the people that have the other definition of capitalism say, but that's not real capitalism. And this kind of falls into the problem of the no true Scotsman fallacy, which is, you know, it's a logical fallacy where you're constantly going, oh, well, that's not that's not the real, you know, 
it's it's the same thing that socialism often runs into where you know people will point out socialist failures like venezuela and cuba and stuff like that and they'll then the socialists will say well that wasn't real socialism oh shit i had the the thought i had for regarding semantics there for a minute and then i lost it again Okay, so I remembered what the uh, the point I wanted to make was about semantics, and it was like, um, so if if you've like read books or like taken classes or you know done any studying about how to do debates, oftentimes what they'll say is that when you when you're beginning a debate, you need to define your terms. That way, you and the person you're debating can agree on the terms of the debate, so everybody understands what the other person means when they're saying that they're arguing for or against a particular thing. But I feel like in the case of capitalism, um, one of the big problems with it is that the people that are opposed to it haven't, because like, I think it's, it's either a symptom of them being opposed to it or their opposition to it leads them to not want to think about it. Like I, I, I swear, like, one of my friends, like, he just refuses to, like, even think about capitalism. Like, he's just so, like, he's got, like, this sort of, like, gut opposition to it that just, it, it, he he can't think about capitalism without, like, feeling bad about it and not wanting to do it. Um just like this instinctual repulsion like kicks in or something like that. But, uh, so like, I, I think that, and, and I'll, it'll be further elaborated on when I get to the, what I want to say about the definition of, of capitalism. But like, I feel like when everybody gets hung up on defining terms, that that because no they can't agree on it people get hung up on it and so it would be better in those situations where nobody can agree on the definition of capitalism just forego that and then proceed to make the points and then you know if you're if you're somebody that's arguing for capitalism and somebody says okay well this is one of the things i don't like about capitalism and this is the problem that i that here's example a of a problem with capitalism rather than going oh well that's that's not that's not real capitalism it doesn't meet my definition of capitalism you shouldn't do that because then that that leads it into a semantic debate instead focus on what the problem is with their 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 claim so like you know say if if they say okay um you know capital this this so and so capitalist um you know does all these bad things like they you know they they pay off politicians in order to get you know these these advantages that allow them well they probably like the anti-capitalist probably won't point out all these things they'll just say okay well this this capitalist you know they um they jack up the prices on you know this thing and nobody and they're like the they're a monopolist they're the sole supplier of this good 
therefore people that want that good have to pay those ridiculously increased prices. Um, usually when I hear those arguments, there's, there's several problems with it. One is that, okay, well, when you, when you consider why this person has a so-called monopoly on that market, it usually involves them, um, you know, lobbying the government in order to get protective laws passed that prevent anybody else from manufacturing whatever good it is because they'll have, um, they'll have patents on it and then they'll have, they'll, they'll exploit patent law, patent law in order to, um, in order to renew their patent, like every, however many years it is before they, you know, expire, you know, they, patent law is stupid. Like there's ways to exploit the law that allow you to renew the patent on the same product over and over by patenting and putting a patent instead of putting the patent on the product as a whole. You can like put patents on like individual aspects of the product, like little pieces of it. Um, that way, you know, this, this is, this is a piece of the product that it, the entire product's existence is dependent upon it can't exist without this piece so then you just keep on you you um once the patent on one part of the product expires you put a patent on another part of the product and another part of the products so that you can ba basically just renew the patent infinitely because you're just instead of patenting the whole product you're patenting individual pieces um and there's lots of shit like that where, you know, there's there's capitalists who will sort of exploit laws and pay regulators and pay politicians to make it as difficult as possible for competitors to enter the market. Um, so, you know, when when you're I feel like when you're debating somebody that's using that as like an example of um, one of the flaws of camp capitalism, you, you say. Um, yeah, I, I agree that's a flaw, but let's look at why that flaw exists. These are the things that are happening, so we need to make it so that people can't do that. Um, you know, it's sort of a don't throw the baby out with the bathwater situation. You know, it's like, okay, these bad things happen. Correct the source of the problem. Don't just say this bad thing happened, therefore dispose of capitalism. Um <clears throat> And then also when you understand like the source of the problem, then it becomes much more able, you're, you're much more able to fix it. These people that are arguing against capitalism, they usually don't know the finer details of what allows these things to happen. They just go, oh, there's this billionaire that has this company where he has a, what they perceive to be a monopoly on a product and he jacks up the prices knowing that nobody else can sell that product. A lot of times too, the product isn't actually a monopoly. It's just like, for example, um, the whole EpiPen thing. Um, like, okay, yeah, the guy, the guy that bought the EpiPen company or whatever and jacked up the prices of the EpiPens. Like, people were like, oh, no, he monopolized the Epi EpiPen market um, and uh, he jacked up the prices. Now nobody can get EpiPens without paying extreme prices. But it's like... Okay, but you don't have to use EpiPens to get your insulin shots. You can still just get your generic insulin shots. You don't have to p pay those ridiculous prices. Just buy insulin shots. You don't need the EpiPen. Um, <laughs> so, uh, 
but I, I, wow, I went way off on a tangent there, but that was just sort of me getting into like an example of like, okay, here's, here's a situation where people say this is the problem with capitalism rather than saying, well, that's not real capitalism. Focus on the problem with, with the root cause of the problem that they're pointing out. Because if you just say that's not ca- real capitalism, then you'll get into a semantic argument and then nothing will be resolved. Having said all that, um, I feel like... Okay, so when it comes to def- de- defining capitalism... So people who are in support of capitalism will usually define it something along the lines of uh, capitalism is the utilization of private property in the pursuit of profits um, in a system of free and voluntary exchanges absent violence and um, violence and coercion and uh, Murray Rothbard specifically also added fraud and if you read I believe I believe it's either chapter two or chapter three of his his econo- he his economics book, um, Man, Economy, and State. It's a very long book, but and I haven't read it through entirely. But what I've read so far is excellent. Um, he goes into detail about why he considers fraud to be anti-capitalist. Um, and it's because through the series of logical steps that he takes, he arrives at the conclusion that fraud is essentially theft. And, you know, theft is a violation of property rights, therefore fraud cannot be capitalism. Um, So I'm going to follow that sort of logic that Murray Rothbard outlined in order to... um, basically work out what the people who are anti-capitalist the way that they define it and like logically work it into our dem- the the definition of somebody who's in support of capitalism um to show that logically even their very vague and uh definition can be worked into our definition if you follow through the logic of what that definition actually means so, you know, we'll say we'll say private property used for profits in a system of voluntary exchanges, absent violence, coercion, and fraud. They'll simply say, uh, often it's something along the lines of private property used for profit, and that's it. No, no other, um, nothing else. So you can actually, in my opinion work through that very basic definition of private property used for profits and logically follow it through to say that it implicitly includes non-violent, non-coercive, non-fraudulent transactions. So the reason for that is because, well, the very first term of that definition is private property. In the term private property is implicitly property rights. 
because property cannot exist if people do not have property rights. Um, because, uh, say, well, for, what are property rights to begin with? Property rights are basically the notion that you have the exclusive right you, you has you have exclusive rights to ownership of something. What exclusivity means is that you get to decide how something you own is used and who it gets to be used by. And if somebody else uses your property or something you own without your consent or by force, then they have violated that right to property. They, they have violated that exclusivity right. Um, and logically, so if I have a toothbrush and somebody else wants to use that toothbrush and I say, no, you're not allowed to use my toothbrush and they do not acknowledge the existence of my right to ownership of that brush, then if, if they don't believe in that right, to property, then that permits them logically and maybe even morally to commit violence upon me in order to gain access to the toothbrush, which I am claiming exclusive rights to. So if you can't have exclusive exclusivity to the property that you own, then you do not have property rights. Um, and implicit in my right to exclude others from using or taking my property, implicit in that is my right to defend that property. Um, now, uh, on top of that, so if we acknowledge that you have to have property rights in order to have private property, the very first property that you come into ownership of as a human being is your own body. And your own body is the main source of making claims to property because property is something that you typically either property as Murray Rothbard defined it through like logically following through with the process of, um, basically a sort of Robinson Crusoe sort of economy uh, is the mixture of labor with natural resources, na unclaimed natural resources in a way that permanently alters it, meaning that your labor has been permanently mixed with nature in such a way that you have altered its that it you have you have altered the nature of this resource so that it is it's changed forever and therefore it is like imbued with a part of you by you having mixed your labor with it which allows you to make claims on unclaimed nature once you've mixed your labor with it and then Everything that we acquire is the result 
of a series of exchanges that follows from our mixture of labor with unclaimed natural resources or in a complex economy like ours, it's often for virtually everyone a mixture of our labor with claimed resources under a contract of exchange of payment for our services upon those claimed resources, um, which that the payment then allows us to trade for property, which we then own. Um, now in this, in this system where we must acknowledge that for, so in the definition of capitalism that they, that anti-capitalists use private property used for profit for private property to be used for profit private property property rights must be acknowledged to exist otherwise it can't it it it's it doesn't work private property or property rights have to exist for this definition to even begin to work so if it's true that people have property rights exclusivity rights then the only way that you can use property that you own in order to make profit is through voluntary exchanges otherwise by you if you if you use your property to generate profit in a way that is un, un, involuntary then that means you have violated somebody else's property rights so you know if you've if you've used your property to you know pay off government officials and you know buy special favors and keep other people out of the market you have in doing so violated other people's property rights if you've if you've generated profit by committing fraud you have through what essentially amounts to theft violated somebody else's property rights therefore implicit in the use of property that falls under a system of property rights the only way to use your property in a way that generates profit without violating somebody else's property rights is through voluntary exchange and contractual exchanges where everybody agrees upon the terms of the exchanges. And through that logic, you you arrive at what is our definition, or the, the definition of, I, I'm assuming everybody listening to this is in favor of capitalism, but if you're not, okay. you Through that logic, you arrive at the definition that a person who is in favor of capitalism, you arrive at their definition. That implicit in the definition, private property used for the purposes of profit, implicit in that is voluntary exchanges, absent violence, fraud, and coercion. Because if you're if you're using violence, fraud, and coercion, then you're violating property rights, and you can't have private property without property rights. So, um, 
So by saying, you know, if if somebody if somebody brings up all these cases of of uh you know, corporations or businessmen or whoever in a system of capitalism using the violence of government using fraud to sell or enter into contracts that um in which one side of the exchange is not receiving their um their agreed upon portion of the exchange or they've been deceived in some way that amounts to theft that's a violation of property rights um or of course theft um violation of property rights um threats to do violence against somebody also a violation of property rights because then it, under the threat of violence your your options for your recourse are are your options for recourse are limited um you know if somebody's threatening violence against you in order to get you to uh enter into a certain arrangement your your options become limited to okay they've threatened me with violence so I can defend myself and do violence to them, in which case you have taken on a risk of bodily harm, which that risk of bodily harm is a violation of your property right of uh, ownership of yourself. Your very first and most important property right is ownership of your own body. Um, if you don't, you know, uh, engage in violence to defend yourself from the threat of violence, then you are living under threat of constant threat of violence. So that you're, you're engaging in something very similar to the, the fraud exchange where you are receiving less in the arrangement than you would voluntarily have agreed to because you're having to you're you're living under the threat of violence in order to you know accept a smaller portion of what you would voluntarily agree to in the exchange um i can't remember all the reasons but it, 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 again this is something murray rothbard goes over in great detail and it's either chapter two or chapter three of Man, Economy, and State. Um, so if you want to get like through all the logic and reasoning of this, I'd recommend giving that a read. Um, you can find it for free on Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. I know I've mentioned Mises.org several times. I just assumed that, you know, my very small audience consists of people who are familiar with it because I assumed that people that would listen to this are libertarians, but or and if not libertarians libertarian uh or um not just libertarians but specifically libertarians familiar with mises but if you're not so i'll spell it out m as in mom i s as in snake e s dot org that's the website you'll find they they have like lots of free um, digital ebooks for from many economists. Like they've they've got um, so you can you can actually read Man Economy and State on that website for free. Um, they also have the audio book version for free. 
Um, they have uh, economics in one lesson on that website for free. Um, lots of stuff. They have lots of stuff on that website for free. Um, now let's see. There was I know there was something else I wanted to say. Okay, I, I remember now. So um, one of the ways I've been watching a lot of um, not Vosh debates because I've just been watching clips of Vosh debates on a um, it was the uh, Stitch and Adam uh, um, it was like the Stitch and Adam clips YouTube page um, I haven't watched them do full commentaries on Vosh debates because I think they run for like six hours and I haven't watched the Vosh debates themselves because I know that they run for like three hours um, I may eventually one day, but I haven't yet. Um, like I said, I did watch Vosh's debate with Stefan Molyneux, Actual Justice Warrior, and Sargon of Cod. Um, but there were, um, there were some clips in which they were commenting on Vosh debating Destiny. Or wait, no, it wasn't even Vosh again this time. Again, it was it was Richard Wolf versus Destiny, um, and on uh, socialism versus no wait no wait it, it was Vosh that's right because I remember they were pointing out like the hypocrisy of Vosh's statement when he said this, um, but they were basically accusing Vosh of engaging in the anarcho-capitalist uh, logic, and I kind of took issue with it because if if you can't tell a lot of the reason. I've, I've mentioned before in this podcast that I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an anarcho-capitalist. I like their ideas. I'm just not fully on board with that because it seems... I'll I, so One day maybe I'll go into further detail about why I think this, but as good as the ideas sound, things have it feels like things have to work out perfectly that it's like you somewhat utopian and like these things have to work out exactly the way that the anarcho capitalists think they will in order for this to work. I mean, they, they provide plenty of like logical reasons why they think it would work out this way, but I, I think it, it misses out on a lot of the human factor, which is very unpredictable. And, um, I mean, that you know, they, they get the market factors right, and they say, okay, well, all these, like, negative human behaviors that are unpredictable that would pro pop up under this system would be weeded out by, by natural market forces. But, I mean, I don't agree with that. Um, I mean, just look at history. It, like, the, anyway, um, like I said, I'll, I'll get into it some other time. Um but uh, I can't remember what exactly Vosh and Destiny were talking about, but they accused Vosh of engaging in um, in the anarcho-capitalist mentality. And their idea of the anarcho-capitalist mentality was, um, I, I believe they actually, now, now that I think about it, yeah, never mind, they were talking about wage slavery, I believe. And... Their notion of the anarcho-capitalist mentality on wage slavery is that anarcho-capitalists just go, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will, so fuck it, who cares? Um, 
which is is not i don't know who these people like i i i, I think sargon of akkad was on the podcast too um I don't know who Stitch, Adam, and Sargon of Akkad have been talking to that have led them to believe that the anarcho-capitalist mentality on low-wage labor would be just, well, who cares if I don't do it, somebody else will. Um, it depends on... How, I'd say it depends on how you're going to approach the argument. What people, like, that are... Like the the this, the sort of the if I don't do it somebody else will um argument sounds like it's being made by people who aren't actually that familiar with anarcho capitalism um and that maybe they're just like uh you know just like doing it to be edgy boys um but so one way I'd I, and I've done this in several episodes. I don't believe in wage slavery. Um, usually when, when making arguments like these, you've got to appeal to morality and people hear you say, like, I think it's one of the reasons why I get into a lot of arguments and people just aren't convinced by me. It's because there is nothing moral about my argument. I'm just making an argument for like, okay, these are the facts of economics and you know, um, that's just, that's just reality, bro. I mean, so like one of the things I say that I don't believe in wage slavery is to, to say that, um, wage slavery is a thing implicit in that is the belief that people are entitled to, so, so a wage slave, you know, is somebody that's, that's paid just enough to where they can survive which, you know, it, it compares them to slaves because slaves, they didn't earn wages, or if they did, it was minimal, and they were basically just, you know, okay, their masters were like, here, here's food, here's a place to sleep, get to work. Um, and wage slavery is the notion that people that are paid so little that they basically can only afford a place to live and food to eat, that makes them essentially the equivalent of a slave. Now, what I'd say is wrong with that is that implicit in that statement is the assumption that people are entitled to a certain amount of value, um, and that that amount of value is equivalent to the amount of value necessary to survive. Now, the problem with that is that if somebody is not able to contribute enough value to society in order to compensate the people that produced the goods and services they need to survive, if they can't produce at least as much value the, 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 as much value as is necessary to maintain their standard of living, they're not entitled to that. It's, I mean, yeah, it's not a moral argument. It might sound, you know, um, harsh. Like, okay, if you can't produce enough to compensate the people. If you can't produce as much value as the value of your food and shelter, then you don't deserve the food and shelter. Sounds really harsh. But that's that's reality. Because if you're not producing as much value as that, then you're the the people that are wage slaves, if they if they are entitled to the shelter and food, 
then that means that it is reversing. It's actually making slaves of the people providing the food and shelter because they're providing food and shelter in exchange for less value than what that food and shelter is actually worth. So like, let's say your food and shelter total is worth, you know, um, well, I probably spend about a thousand dollars a month on food and shelter, just food and shelter. I'm not counting things like electricity and cable. I'm counting the things you need to survive. Um, and it's probably less than a, th- like if I were to go only by what I absolutely need to survive, it's probably a lot less than a thousand, but we'll just say it's a thousand. If, if the value of all the food, uh, the food and shelter that I need is a thousand dollars per month and I only produce $700 per month, but we've established this system where we say everybody deserves a living wage, um, Therefore, you know, I'm owed this food and shelter. Then that means that the people that provide me the food and shelter are short the extra $300 necessary to provide that food food and shelter to me. So you're essentially taking $300 from them in order to provide food and shelter to me. Um... And that's, that's if we're going under a system where we're, you know, doing something like UBI or something. Um, if it's just, okay, we're saying everybody deserves a minimum wage, therefore, or uh, a living wage, therefore raising minimum wages is the solution. Well, by doing that, and, and again, this is something I've talked a lot about in previous episodes. I don't know why, for some reason, just like, a lot of the wage and labor and slave la- or slave wages and stuff like that, those arguments, like, really irk me. So I end up doing a lot of videos about, or videos, podcasts about them. I'm not going to go too far into depth on the whole minimum wage thing, but, okay, minimum wage is basically what you're talking about. You're talking about inflation, for one. There, there are several, several effects that minimum wages, increasing minimum wages has. One is more unemployment. So by saying everybody deserves a minimum wage, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're providing the living wage to a certain set of people at the expense of another set of people who now lose their jobs. Because when you tell McDonald's that they have to pay people $17 an hour or whatever, I know, I know the, the, Minimum wage arguments are often $15 an hour. But after this pandemic, I'm I'm convinced that the minimum wage people are going to be arguing for like $25 an hour as minimum wage because that's going to go up that much from all the inflation and the fucking spending going on un- under the pandemic. But like, okay, so if you say if you say that the minimum wage is $15 an hour because everybody deserves a minimum wage or a living wage, then what's going to happen is you're going to get less on less employment. And who's going to get to keep those jobs? It's not going to be the people that actually need it. It's not going to be the people that are literally supporting families and they have like limited skills available to them and they're literally stuck. You know, it's going to the, 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 the businesses, the managers, whoever the bosses, they're going to look at, okay, who are all the people that I have staffed that I can keep whose 
the the value of their labor is worth keeping them on at $15 an hour. It's going to be the people that have higher education so that they can perform more tasks than simply running the grill or running the cash register. They're going to have to have a higher skill set. So you're going to be cutting out all those people that don't have those skills. You're going to, so you're going to be raising the minimum wage jobs like at McDonald's to a level where it's going to be, oh, you've got to have a college degree just to work at McDonald's. I, because they're, that's what they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to cut out all the people that don't have high skill. That way they're, you know, because they want to keep the people on that can generate the most value for them. They want to keep the people on that actually generate enough value to justify a $15 minimum wage. And I talked about this in a previous episode when I was talking about the marginal product of labor or the marginal labor product. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's something like that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that you're doing when you're raising the minimum wage, saying people deserve a living wage, is that you're, you're causing inflation. So all these people that are working minimum wage jobs, now they have more money with which to, you know, and this is the problem with the Keynesian argument on economics that they say, oh, you know, when the economy is doing bad, well, then we need to stimulate the economy in order to encourage more consumption um, because they think that consumption is what makes the economy go. It's what keeps it moving. And sure, you need you need consumption in an economy to keep it going, but that's not what grows an economy. That's just what keeps it running. So when 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 you do that, you're increasing demand specifically for the sort of goods that those low wage laborers buy a lot of. So you're you're increasing particularly the the price of um, cheap food because that's that's what low wage laborers buy. They buy a lot of cheap, inexpensive food. Um, typically a lot of easy to make food because they don't have the luxury of, you know, having, you know, a wife that works part time because she doesn't need to work a full time job that, you know, she comes home early every day so that she can cook the dinner or whatever, or, you know, tons of shit. But, um, you know, they, they, they buy cheap food that's easy to make. Um, and when you, you know, raise the wages, you're going to increase the demand for that. And then as that demand ripples through the economy, the prices of those things are going to increase. And then it's all going to spread out through the economy, just like we've been seeing with these these stimuluses under the pandemic, where it just causes massive inflation. And that essentially is a tax on everybody. And specifically, inflation is a tax on uh, future earnings and savings and investment. So when you're when when you're talking about you know paying people a living wage because they're they're wage slaves or uh on slave wages whatever when you're saying you've got to pay everybody a living wage to compensate for that it's cut so they're not producing enough to to meet the value of what's being provided to them and as a it's by by doing that through a through a UBI system, I've already explained how that's that's you know essentially taking value from the people providing them with those services that they need to survive. So you reversed you you well not reversed because it's not as if they were owed that shit to begin with, but <clears throat> and then under the minimum wage situation, 
you're stealing from everybody through a system of inflation and um well both of them are systems of inflation whether it's whether it's minimum wages or UBI both of them cause massive inflation um so you're you're stealing from everybody particularly you're stealing from um future earnings uh savings and investment you're stealing from those in specific um and then you're also basically stealing from the people that really need those jobs the people that actually like the the pe- the, the people that oftentimes think that this minimum wage increase is going to help them because that, that you know they they want the higher wages but they don't have the skills and they're off, uh, the the low skill laborers are the first to go so when you're when you're raising the minimum wage you're providing a living wage to somebody at the expense of somebody else's living so anyway uh blah 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 that seems like a huge tangent like what oh that's right cuz i was talking about uh how um stitching adam and sargon said that Vosh was making the anarcho-capitalist argument regarding wage slavery by saying that people, um, you know, if if somebody, somebody else is going to do it, so it might, might as well be me. They were saying that's the anarcho-capitalist argument? Well, it's not. Okay, so I, I went on about the, the, the wage slavery, minimum wages, and UBI. Okay, so the other thing that I think anarcho-capitalists would say is not that, but that the solution to supposed wage slavery, basically people not earning enough to get shelter and um, survive, is, um, so aside from, so, so there's the, the forced method, which I just went over, and then the method that I think that anarcho-capitalists would say would would solve the problem is okay so you ask what what is it that determines the price of labor and you know just applying basic on economics well it's the demand for labor versus the supply of labor okay so how do you get the price of labor to increase well you can either increase the demand for labor or decrease the supply of labor. Well, decreasing the supply of labor sounds kind of bad because that sounds like, you know, um, a culling or like a genocide, you know, getting rid of the undesirables or something. So that's not the solution. So the other one would be increasing demand. Well, how do you increase the demand for labor? You make it so that it's easier for more businesses to enter into a market. Um, you encourage business growth. You make it so that there are more jobs available. And how have libertarians and uh, capitalists been arguing that you um, increase demand for, for labor and make more jobs available? Well, you make it easier for businesses to enter into the market by reducing taxes, which lower the hurdle that they need to get over in order to be... Um, profitable and remain you know sustainable um you 
reduced regulations, making it easier for them to enter into the market. Again, that's another hurdle that businesses have to get over. Um, you reduce capital gains taxes because um, with high capital gains taxes, it makes it so that the um, new business startups that are particularly risky investments might not be worth it because if you don't get that return, then you if you don't get a return that uh, gets over that hurdle of the capital gains tax, then it's, um, you know, you're losing money on a investment in a startup. So a high capital gains tax makes it more beneficial to invest in the long-established multi-billion dollar corporations that already exist as opposed to the small business that might be a big risk but you know that can't get over the hurdle of the large capital gains tax so it's not worth it to invest in those um there's a lot of things but you know basically make it easier for businesses to open and as as far as that goes the United States is not actually one of the best countries in the world for conducting business or being a business startup. Like this is one of the things that capitalists often, you know, criticize socialists for when they say that the Scandinavian countries are socialist. It's like, really? Well, have have you looked at them? Because they all have significantly fewer regulations and red tape than, uh, than the United States when it comes to starting up a business. They all have lower capital gains taxes and corporate taxes. They make it very easy to open a business in those countries by comparison to the United States. The United States is a fucking nightmare for opening up a business by comparison to the Scandinavian countries. So the Scandinavian countries are, in that aspect, much more capitalist than the United States. Um... So yeah, that's that's what I'd say the the anarcho-capitalist argument to, for um, how to solve the wage slavery issue would be. It's not, oh well, you know, somebody else will do it, so it might as well be me. It's no, okay. Well, if people aren't being paid well, I'd say that the way you fix that is make it so that there's more businesses that where there's more demand for labor. If there's more demand for labor, then that increases the prices because as we know, if the demand for labor increases relative to the supply, then the price will increase. So people will have to pay more in order to attract the scarce labor that's available to their business that they need to need to function. So, um, yeah, I I guess that's about it. I've been going on for a lot longer this episode than I thought I would. It's almost been an hour, so I'll catch you later. <laughs>